Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is Panic. I'm excited to talk about Panic because I feel like it connects really well to some of the other episodes in earlier seasons where we talked about fear and anxiety and monstrosity. And so I suppose we should start by thinking about how Panic is different from those and or related to each of those topics that we have already covered. What do you think, Laura? Right. Well, I think I think Panic is different than fear and anxiety. When we talked about fear and anxiety, we talked about how they had a very rational basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I think panic involves an overreaction. Like it's a feeling that's out of proportion with whatever the offense that's causing the panic is. And I think a lot of times when it is a, a panic involved with like a, a cultural phenomenon or a social situation. It often relies on like broad generalizations that don't have a lot of basis in reality or lived experience. Like I, I, I think a lot of times panic is overblown. Mm. And so it relates to monstrosity in that way. Um, because we talked about how people created this grotesque imagery around otherness and that's a completely overblown reaction to things that are different from you. And so I think I think panic falls into this category where there's not a lot of rationality in the way that anxiety and fear are oftentimes completely rational. I think we really did touch on how panic can uh, transform into cultural aggression or Mm -hmm. into um, the fabrication of like damaging narratives and structures as we discussed in the monstrosity episode. What do you think? I mean, I just really feel like panic is different than fear and anxiety for two reasons. One is in the magnitude of the emotional response. So I totally agree with you that it's disproportionate. It's out of proportion. And I think... The other is in movement. I think panic is an emotion is intrinsically connected to movement. So people move differently. So they stampede or they thrash or they feel overwrought or they, I mean, there is an, a different kind of corporeal embodied response to panic that is not quite the same as fear or anxiety. I think anxiety and panic are closer than fear and panic actually, especially in the American context. I mean, there are certain other historical contexts maybe where that affective relationship is different. But here I think panic and anxiety are close together. And I was sort of thinking about the medication of America and sort of the way in which Americans are consuming anti-anxiety medications at such tremendous rates. And I'm thinking about the reason that people seek some of those. A lot of people have panic attacks. I'm thinking about the relationship between capital and overwork and political instability and shifting cultural roles and tremendous amounts of interpersonal social pressure contributing to what I think are largely a social phenomenon. You know, I'm thinking about panic as a public emotional reaction to political circumstances not necessarily as an individual biochemical thing that needs to be regulated by medicine, but as a widespread 
cultural phenomenon that is completely predictable because of the feedback ne- mechanism between you know a failing deliberative democracy and the rise of militant capitalism. Well, you know, I, I think about I think about panic in that in that panic attack kind of way, like in a personal level, and it, it's about a lack of control, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the cultural level, when there's a mass panic about a situation, that's also about a, a lack of control. And I think that's, mm-hmm. it's a reaction to this, like, to patriarchy, honestly, <laughs> to like this culturally enforced normativity. And white supremacy <laughs> and right. ableism and transphobia. Right. And so when there's this hyper-structured system, any kind of loss of control becomes a huge source of anxiety. There's this unthinking behavior involved in panic. Panic is like your perspective is so limited, right? Mm -hmm. And it's limited because you have to operate in these like really limited parameters in terms of relationships in a a hypernormative way, in terms of your career and financial success driven way. And it's a, in some ways to me, like a failure to understand the world around you as it actually exists and a failure to connect with other people. (laughs) If you're thinking about, panic as an inability to connect with people you can kind of observe how people react to panic i mean it's completely heavy-handed it's ineffective hyper militarized stop and frisk stop and frisk is all about militarizing against panic Mm -hmm. totally failure to understand the problem Mm -hmm. and it's a failure to understand that compassion compassionate understanding of other people in some ways, it eliminates the problem entirely. Like, a lot of what people are panicked about are non-problems. Or at least they're not problems in the way that they're framed. Um, I guess it depends on who you're talking about. Because on the one hand, we're talking about the panic of citizens reacting to state overreach. And on the other hand, we're talking about the state manufacturing panic as an intentional misrecognition of their own power and of the power of the people. And so I guess I would like to parse that because I think that you're right that at the individual level, at the interpersonal level, panic is what is a result of alienation and isolation and the effects of capital removing people from cultural connections and communal kinship networks. That's a real thing. And so when you have that kind of relationship where kinship networks are disrupted by the state and people are living in gated communities and behind walls and in giant McMansions and in suburbs where there's no public transportation and they can't get around and they're not spending time with people who are different than them, then yes, you get panic because all you have on the other side is fear of the unknown. And so that's a problem. On the other hand, you have the government manufacturing panics around sex especially, but also race and geography and otherizing non-normative bodies in ways that help build the case for them to militarize. And so I think those two panics are happening simultaneously. There are people who are panicking because their life, like you said, is narrowly prescribed and there are not a lot of creative ways to to manage oneself in this hyper-surveilled, hyper-punitive state. And then the other side where the state is absolutely manufacturing panics as a way of increasing mass incarceration, building up a militarized police body, and otherwise shrinking federal responsibility for guaranteeing you know, rights that are applied equally to all people. 
those two kinds of panics are happening simultaneously, which creates chaos <laughs> and more panic. I can't think of a successful campaign from any powers that be that handled public outrage or panic in a successful way. You mean success or do you mean ethical? I mean both. I I mean, I think about McCarthyism. I think about the war on drugs. The war on terror, for sure. But, yeah, I, you I know, think I've about been the think, war on terror. I was thinking also. about Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and thinking about the Bush administration as handling 9-11 as this moment of shock and panic that consolidated an administration for two terms and pushed a spending agenda and a budget agenda that decimated public education and social welfare. And certainly the Trump administration is doing the same sort of thing. It's a shock campaign, and that leads people to feel panic. And so I feel like one of the reasons why I wanted to put panic on this season is because I feel like as I'm out in the community talking to people about politics and activism and civic engagement and national and state-level political moments, everybody's freaked out (laughs) and people are totally panicked. And as an affective space, it is very different. It is a very different moment to be out talking about civic engagement and and public participation, public deliberation in a deliberative democracy now than it was during the Obama administration. It is also different than it was during the Bush administration. So the scope and kind of panic that I think we're seeing now is very much tied to the amount of shock and awe that are part of this campaign of ruthlessly consolidating capital for the wealthy 1%. I mean, that is what's happening. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read any candidate's platform as based on, or as a response to panic. Oh, but there have been. I've been reading, rereading a lot of Arthur Schlesinger's writings in the 1960s because I've been writing a lot about hope as a political emotion and thinking about mid-20th century liberalism as totally a response to panic. Panic about the atomic bomb, panic about the hydrogen bomb, panic about the end of the war, panic about America's guilt and complicity with Nazi Germany. I mean, the liberalism of the Kennedy administration in the early years of the Johnson administration were absolutely a response to panic, 100%. However, once the Democratic Party decided to embrace civil rights, as they did a little bit under Kennedy, he shouldn't get tons of credit, but did more so under Johnson, then that created the possibility for the white supremacists to mobilize panic against desegregation. And that happened certainly before Kennedy, but it came, it came to a pitch during the middle of the Johnson administration. So I think that rather than seeing the you know, candidates' platforms as responsive to panic, they both create panic and attempt to ameliorate it. And some of those campaigns do better at one or the other, right? So the Trump administration definitely created a sense of panic, for sure, among Trump's base. Hillary Clinton did not do that, right? And so that created a huge gulf in the way that they messaged to their base about how to fundamentally understand the political reality that we are in. She didn't create, she couldn't, she couldn't even create it about climate change, right? Which is arguably the biggest issue <laughs> facing humankind. And she created zero exigency around it. Zero. She lost that discussion 
about what we should be panicked about and why she would be the person to to help to resolve that panic. And all he did was stoke the panic and give really understandable, legible solutions for his base. He did better at cultivating and attempting to provide solutions that would you know, resolve some of the panic that his base had, period. And that's why he won. It's certainly a, one of the most effective mobilizing strategies that I can think of. But sometimes I think when people are uh, hyper vocal about a public issue, it becomes misattributed as a kind of panic. So I feel like there's been a lot of feminist, vocal feminist activism recently, and it's been read as like feminist panic. So the like campus rape protests, I mean, even like reproductive justice protests have been read as like a type of feminist panic, like an overblown reaction. And, you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement has been read as like a, a type of panic. Um, and it, it undermines like the point that there are real problems that people are grappling with. And it's not an overblown reaction sometimes to be publicly outspoken. Yeah, I mean, I think that panic is a rhetorical vector that absolutely hinges on othering. So it makes sense that BLM activists or feminist activists who are doing abortion rights work would be painted as part of a panic because they're being othered as unruly bodies in an otherwise orderly polis. Now, of course, we know that the nation is not orderly. There's disorder all over the place. The government itself sows it in lots of ways. But it's no surprise to me ever really that the kinds of punitive politics surrounding sex panic, race panic, national panic happen around marginalized people who are trying to secure bodily autonomy. You know, whether that's from the police who are killing unarmed black kids or whether that's from the state who refuses to capitulate to privacy and the relationship between the doctor and the patient, both of those are fundamentally about bodily autonomy. And I think that anybody who studies nations or nationalism or who thinks about what the government is transitioning to now in the United States has to fundamentally understand that decisions like Citizens United or the Supreme Court decision in Hobby Lobby versus Conestoga, all of those moments of political discourse are fundamentally about the state's ability to control bodily autonomy. And so it seems reasonable to me that people would be panicked about losing things that they find to be essential <laughs> to their bodily autonomy. Those things are almost always going to revolve around genitals and sex and sex behavior and the ability to bear children because that's how you control the fundamental character of the nation. And so for me, thinking about, say, the anti-trans bathroom bills are all about sex panic, about acknowledging and giving formal political rights to people who do not fit into a normative framework about what ruled, well-ruled bodies look like. And that has always been the national agenda. It's been that way about immigrants. It's been that way about refugees. It's been that way about voting rights. It's been that way about desegregation. All of the major political battles in the landscape of American history are fundamentally written over bodies in terms of who is ruly and unruly, who can be domesticated and who can't. I like this idea of thinking about misattributed panic, right? Because immigrants right now are freaking out about ICE raids. That is a reasonable response. That's, that's not some sort of emotional hysteria. 
that is not warranted. It's completely reasonable to be out in the streets concerned about your community and these completely unwarranted deportations. I think it is reasonable to say that the panic around that that was kind of cultivated with Donald Trump's Make America Great Again slogan is unreasonable. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> like, sure. It's racist. To feel like you've lost <laughs> control just because other people have, there's been a lot of headway made in human rights, not enough, or a lot of headway made in social justice issues to attribute that to like a loss of bodily autonomy because you have less control because other people have more rights. Yeah, but that's the hypocrisy of living in a liberal democracy. I mean, we're living in a moment where Jerry Sandusky's sex crimes at Penn State were called assault instead of what they really were, which was rape. That's a huge problem in thinking about how we understand men and the way in which they use weaponized sex. And we're looking at a time when you have all of these GOP legislators in state houses and in Congress who for the last 30 years have been convicted of hardcore sex crimes. And they're the very ones who are pushing this, you know, Family Research Council sex panic agenda that's anti-woman, anti-queer, anti-trans. That should come as no surprise because the hypocrisy of the nation is that its most vocal proponents of sex panic are often the ones who are covering up either non-normative lives or crimes. That is what Jasper Poor calls it homonationalism, right? That there are these moments of contact that create the nation. You can't have a heterosexual nation. Heterosexism and heterosexuality don't exist without the other, which is homo or similar or same or queer. And those are happening, they're co-constitutive discourses. They're happening simultaneously, right? Where you have this like assertion of this is what a normal body is, right? Audre Lorde calls it the mythical norm, the white, Christian, straight, financially secure, thin man. And that is not what the citizen is in America. That is not who the average American citizen is. And so that mythical norm exists alongside this huge range of other kinds of citizens and residents who build the nation, build its economy, pay taxes, are members of civic communities, serve in the armed forces, participate in, in, in civic life in the United States. Thinking about that, you're right, it's, it's completely unreasonable to motivate panic in the service of capital and homophobia and sexism and racism the way that the administration has been doing. It's massively unethical. I mean, but look at Donald Trump's proposed budget. It's a joke. The increase in defense spending. For I what? I mean, all of his rhetoric about around defense and, like, the nuclear program. I mean, that's a play on people's panic. And their inadequacies. But that's what the state does. Mm -hmm. They use that narrative in order to secure more surveillance. I mean, to justify a tighter grip in a lot of ways. I guess so. I mean, I'll be a slight devil's advocate here in that this is definitely a moment where even if you're not, if you're to the left of the Democratic Party, it's really hard to argue right now that that either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump would have been the exact same kind of president. 
There is one argument in which presidential power as a mode is fairly stable and predictable and is part of the office. And there's another in which there are ideological differences about how to wield power between parties. And, and it's also true that that, that difference has, has narrowed, right, as the Democratic Party has moved to the right. And I don't mean to push that away, obviously. But the hard part, I think, right now is that the government does produce excessive punitive power. And it does so in ways that are completely arbitrary and are also catalyzed against certain bodies, regardless of who's in political power as president, mostly because the state apparatus is really being enacted in other levels, at the state level or the agency level or cabinet level places. But the, the takeaway is that the idea of the U.S. being a democracy is really a myth that needs to be unpackaged because punitive power is an intrinsic part of what the U.S. is, whether it's exclusionary nationalism and it's anti-immigrant, or whether it's penal power in the penitentiary, or police power in the blue line, right? I mean, all of the apparatus of the state has dimensions of it that are about surveillance and about domesticating bodies, because that's what nations do. But it's not always done in the same way. And so I think the goal moving forward is to use this moment where the power is consolidating so clearly to imagine new ways of understanding what we could give ourselves in terms of a break from that kind of punitive power. This is a moment to rethink public education. We're going to have to do that. This is a moment to rethink what it means to work. What is work? You know, these big, really huge questions have to be grappled with now, and we have to have more creative solutions to them. Those are the difficult things to grapple with, though, because... They're so institutionalized and they're so ingrained. There's a huge long history of all of, all of that. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, I don't feel that much anxiety about how much punitive power that the government has because it has always been so. Well, you're also white though. Uh, yeah. And you live in a white place and you live with a place that's not characterized that's by intrinsic police power. And you live in a super small state that's not going to come to millions of dollars to inflate city budgets with punitive politics. I mean, part of that is standpoint and part of that's geography. It does not look the same in other places. If we think about New York or California, right, who are the big blue places that are going to take on Trump, the irony there is that they have more, more access to more rights, right, regardless of what those are, whether it's going to be single-payer health care in California or whether it's reproductive rights or whatever, but they also have larger prisons and larger police forces and stop and frisk. Both of those things are true at the same time. The index is really about how much money can be spent to build the punitive parts of the culture. And that's why I'm saying state-level politics has to be where it's at because that's where, that's where you actually see the functioning of power. It's not so abstract as it is in the executive branch of the federal government. You know what I'm saying? Right. It still seems pretty abstract to me, though, because I have this notion, and it could be a mischaracterization, but I do have this notion that even at the state level, a lot of members of the legislature are party to political influence, lobbying, just straight-up bribery. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah, totally. Corruption is real. Uh, That's yeah. real. Corruption and is real. so 
I see your point, but I, again, I, it still seems really abstract to me because it, there seems to be this structure of power that I don't have access to, that most people don't have access to. There's this uh, separation between representative and represented. And this is one reason why I think the U.S. doesn't have a socialist party, <laughs> right? That the socialist Democrats are not a bigger deal in the U.S. like they are in the rest of Europe. A, the U.S. is so big. B, there's been just a tremendous demonization of socialism for the last 150 years that have made it unpalatable. Um, <clears throat> and C, the destruction of the unions means it's hard to find a base to build collective power outside of the church in most of America where right-to-work legislation is stripped away, unions and collective bargaining. And D, the major thing and the takeaway from not having a democratic socialist party is that all of these things that you and I are talking about are abstract and are not demystified. I have college students who don't know how money works. They don't know how compounding interest works. They don't understand what is lost when you remove a pension and give a 401k. They don't understand the stock market. They don't understand bonds. They don't understand, you know, bundled debt and bad debt. So the fact that they don't understand how money works tells you how abstract most of the facets of American life, since capitalism revolves around access to wealth and our ability to maintain it and augment it. That, I think, is a real problem. And so for me, thinking about the 2016 election in retrospect is how much space Bernie Sanders was able to take up and about how his supporters took up space, thinking about class again in a way that it probably needs to be taken up again. That's not to say that he should do it without thinking through what we know now about race and gender, but that ultimately the way that you demystify power in a capitalist space that's becoming more authoritarian is through a critique of capital. It has to be there. There's no other way to demystify power when you're seeing such tremendous consolidation of wealth. It's not possible. So whether you liked Sanders or not, or whether you voted for him or not, the kind of space that he has taken up is really important for the nation and certainly deserves more credit than it's gotten. Because I think people are panicking for, for the same reason you said. They don't understand how the power is, is affecting them, but they feel it. It's imprinting on their bodies. They feel it in lots of ways. And that's for the white people. Because brown people know what the power looks like, and they feel it all the time. And they're aware of it constantly from being surveilled in the grocery store or at the mall all the way through to stop and frisk or to deportations or to substandard education or to employment discrimination or housing discrimination. They feel it all the time. You know, trans people feel it all the time. But for white people, especially middle class people, yeah, I think the power is mystified. And if we want to shift them away from this sort of Trumpian consolidation of wealth, they have to be able to see how financial power and the consolidation of wealth builds, you know, authoritarian governments and what that what people lose, what everybody loses when that happens. So I would rather see people respond to their panic with sustained critique of capital than basically anything else. I want them to lean back from capitalism as a way of resisting panic. I want them to lean back away from all the cultural practices that create alienation and fear. The thing is, is, you know, when we started talking about activism and last season and thinking through the emotional dynamics of this kind of political moment, 
we keep coming back to community is the source of inspiration and creativity and the impulse to destroy authoritarianism and to recognize abusive power and to rebuild. And that is what's happening in communities across the country right now is that people are creating spaces to re-engage with their communities to push back against a common enemy. And that's really useful. We haven't seen anything like that. That did not happen during the Bush administration. Did not happen. Not even with Occupy Wall Street. Did it happen like yeah. that? You're right. Community building is the solution to a lot of structural fear that people have. In terms of drug treatment, incarceration is not a very effective solution, but a community-driven program. Always is. Yes. Always better. Yeah. Social support networks. I mean... Jobs. Jobs. <laughs> jobs. Jobs. Those solutions aren't easy. I mean, again, the consolidation of power and money, I mean, it strains a lot of individual resources. And I just feel like people don't even know how to articulate what they're feeling when they, when they feel panicked, when they feel political panic that's generated by the government's inability to deliver, you know, services, social welfare services to their communities. And I just, I think people to right now have a sense about how bad it's going to get under this administration. But the unknown is the scope <laughs> of how tremendous it's going to be and how that power is going to work itself in different ways against different bodies. And so I, I, don't, I don't think that the panic about the Trump administration is totally unwarranted, I guess. Um, I just didn't know that... I don't think that it's unwarranted to feel panic about the Trump administration. I think it's unwarranted to, to call it fascism right now, though, because I think that's a misattribution, <laughs> right, of, of blame about consolidating power for the sake of it and what is ultimately the consolidation of wealth. They go together, but they're not the same. It's smart to read the Trump administration as both desperate and clumsy, but that ultimately himself, Trump himself, his goal is to consolidate his own personal wealth. And that has to be at the forefront of the read on Russia or the FBI or the tax returns or who's in the White House or who he sees. Because he really doesn't care about the social agenda of America. He's just Those are just political appointments to satisfy the people who got him elected. They're not his personal care. So to map their shit onto him is a mistake of a fundamental kind. That's a fundamental misattribution error, I think. There's a lot to unpack with what Trump's rise to power means and what his administration represents about how the U.S. government has operated yeah. for a long time. I mean, even when he was running against Hillary Clinton, I was like, to even have him, like, <laughs> on the same kind of pedestal, like, with the same amount of respect, like... That they were treated as equals in any kind of sense. <laughs> I mean, that was extremely frustrating to me. And you can see, you know, a lot yeah. of the other world leaders. Um, you can see their <laughs> discontent that they are on some kind of, like, equal plane with this buffoon. Right? Yeah, like, Justin Trudeau okay. is just like, I'm a Gen Xer. <laughs> you can just see it in his eyes. He's yeah. like, I cannot believe this asshole. Right. 
Yeah, but I think that the contempt is the right thing. I think contempt is also a totally reasonable way of resisting panic. I think satire is a reasonable way of resisting panic. I think play is, a, obviously, I think play is the answer to almost everything. <laughs> you know? But I think that the panic that's produced by the government is also a result of intense insecurity. And almost always it's about white masculinity and insecurity is about white masculinity in a changing political economy or social sphere. Uh, in Trump's case, it's about aging and being an older white man. I think it's about virility, obviously, because the entire conversation about him is about sex. So I think virility is part of his own personal panic, you know, panic around him. I think that there are a lot of tools at our disposal to manage political panic as it emerges. And I think that if you break that down to the micro level about what's happening inside of individual people, the answer is always more community. You know, that is the thing that hedges against the fear and the desperation and the lack of an outlet and, and the the insecurity about an uncertain future that we can't possibly know. And there's just so much that we don't know about what the scope of the massive social upheaval in the U.S. is going to look like that people need to give up that sense of feeling of control and play and be open to contingency because that's where solidarity is going to be. That's where creativity is going to be. That's where the solutions are going to be found is in the giving up control. I, I was saying to somebody the other day, they were, they were remarking about the podcast, and I said, you know, there's just only one lesson to learn as a human. And they said, what's that? And I was like, let go. You have got to learn to let go. I feel like people who can't let go are just holding on to things so tight. It's like a little kid with a kitten that they're choking to death. It's like you have got to let go to what you knew or what you thought or where you were or who you were, and you've got to be willing to transform yourself you know, as your circumstances change. And that's a tall order, you know, but it is, it's the lesson of the moment. Lean back, let go. Be willing to fall and fail and play and recover. for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.